What if? What if indeed? Um, it is good to be here this morning. If you're new, my name is Philip and I, I lead the team here that leads the church. And uh, as we've just heard, we're going to be starting a brand new series and asking that question. What if there was a genuinely timeless design in which men and women could live within and it worked and it caused each other to flourish? So not only was it timeless, but what if it was beautiful? Let me put it a different way. Before the days of Satnav, we had physical maps. Remember those, anybody? We used to get them out on a car and leaf through them and argue over them. Before the days of maps, people used to use the stars, didn't they, to navigate. You had the North Star, Polaris. So without maps, if you knew where Polaris was, the North Star was, you, you would know where North was, and you'd be able to navigate your way accordingly. So to put it differently, what we need, I think, is a, a fixed point like the North Star. As, as culture fluctuates and changes and, and pressures and suggestions and all kinds of things come around and, and things go wrong, we need a fixed point by which we can, as men and women, navigate and know what it is to be men and women, know how to treat each other, and by which all the implications of maleness and femaleness also fit into a timeless, beautiful design. So we'll be touching on all kinds of things. We want to know not just what, it, what, not just what does it mean to be a man or to be a woman, but what about the implications of that upon our sexuality, upon our gender, upon our relationships and, and dating, and upon parenting and, and church life and marriage and, and so on and so forth. So nothing controversial in there at all. <laughs> We're going to ask the question, what if there was a genuinely timeless design as culture argues and talks, and you, you don't need me to tell you how much discussion there is out there, but all of those things I've just mentioned and much more. What if there was something in the Word of God that was timeless, that we could anchor ourselves to, and it worked, and it caused men to flourish and women to flourish? And the conviction of this series is that there is, that it's found in the Word of God, and so we're going to open ourselves up as a church for the next 12 weeks, this side of Christmas, and then a break, and then after Christmas, open ourselves up to, uh, to the Word of God, and to allow it to shape us, and to allow it to change us, and to challenge us, and to cause us to flourish. That's my heart and passion for these next few weeks. Now, I know that some of you would love to get into some of the, the hot topics, yeah? And we'll talk about sexuality, and about transgender, and about pornography, and about dating, and about singleness, and about marriage, and about who does what in the life of the church. But as we discuss these things as an eldership team, and indeed as eldership couples, we came together to talk and to eat and to pray, we really felt in God that actually we want to tell the big story. If you just leap into talking about, say, sexuality, well, homosexuality. That's like leaping into chapter 10 of a big story. If we talk about singleness straight away, it's like leaping into chapter 18 of a big story. You can read the chapter, and it'll make sense to a degree, but it won't, you won't understand the big story. In fact, you might even misunderstand the plot line of the big story if we leap into chapter 12. You with me? I want to take some time to tell the overarching narrative into which these various things that I've mentioned find their, find their place. Okay? One other just um, introductory comment, as it were. If you're not a Christian here this morning, we're really glad that you're here. We love having people amongst us who are looking in, wondering, observing, exploring. But it's worth just saying, when it comes to something like this, just acknowledging we're coming at it from quite different viewpoints, yeah? I, many of us, are coming at these issues from the point of view, in simple terms, of conviction about the person of Jesus. Because I'm convinced of the, the person of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the fact that Jesus continually affirmed the whole of the Bible as the word of God, that's why I and many of us, we choose to stand upon the word of God and base our lives on it. 
but if you're not a Christian here this morning, you'll be coming at things from a very different angle. And that's okay, and, and we're glad that you're here. And I want you to be here for this whole series, as long as you'd like to be. But I would love you to consider, along with being amongst us here, exploring and prioritizing who Jesus is. Because it's only our convictions around who Jesus is that means that we then, that's the big story, that we then can, can begin to ground ourselves and understand these, these bigger issues. So you could do an Alpha course with us. We can make that happen. You could uh, look on our, on, our, on our website and look at the Ask London series back in, in 2016 that we did. There's a talk on there just around, did Jesus come back to life again? Because that's what the Christian faith stands upon. So I'd love you to kind of prioritize that journey as we as a church family journey, given our conviction in those things, if that makes sense. One other introductory just point to make is at certain points in this series, I can guarantee you things will grate on you. <laughs> I can promise you that. And that might be because I'm just being a bit insensitive or I just, well, I'm getting it wrong. That's possible and you'll forgive me, won't you? Let me just give you, uh, I can guarantee you, it will, sometimes it will grate, it will challenge, and I probably will touch on things that might, for some of us, be very, very personal, and maybe even very painful. Can I just give you a helpful little toolkit to try and navigate those moments when they come, because they will. It's called the ABCs. It goes like this. When that happens, when you get that ooh moment, I want you to A, I want you to ask. I want you to ask God, ask the Holy Spirit, why am I feeling this way? What's, what's going on in me? Is it just because Philip's a bit of a clown? Or is there something actually that's, that's taking place in me that the Holy Spirit can help to highlight? B, Bible. Read it. Study it for yourself. Take responsibility for understanding the Bible, weighing what's taught here every Sunday. And C, chat. Yeah? Talk about it. Find people in the church family who you, who you know and love and respect and talk about things. Find leaders and chat. Okay? Ask Bible chat. And on that note, after the message this morning, indeed every Sunday, we're going to have a Q&A question and response just after the service. If you want to kind of unpack things, ask things, challenge things, what about this type things, because I can't cover everything in these moments, we're going to do a question and response just over here to my left. You can grab a cup of tea or something, come back in around about 10 past 12, and you can ask, challenge anything you wish, Christian, non-Christian, mature Christian, new Christian. We can just flesh some things out afterwards if you'd like to in a way that I can't during the message. Okay? This is going to be good, right? I really am convinced God's going to do a good thing in us as a church. Because these are, these are things we need to know about. We need to understand what are we anchoring ourselves to when it comes to these various issues. So God is going to shape us. He's going to bless us. And I believe he's really going to refine us and cause us to flourish. Women, men, single, married, older, younger, new Christian, old Christian, not yet Christian. So, to tell the overarching story, I guess it would make sense to start out the beginning, okay? So let's start at the beginning. Patrick, one of the elders here, loves to start at Genesis 1. So in honor of him, it's Genesis 1 uh, this week and Genesis 2 next week, and it begins at in the beginning. And if you're new to the Bible, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are kind of like two parallel accounts for the creation of the world and of mankind in particular. They tell the same story, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, but in different ways, effectively. And we're going to be in Genesis 1 this morning, okay? So here we go. In the beginning... And science, by the way, is now convinced that there was indeed a beginning. The universe had a beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. 
and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, are you noticing already the pairs, the way there are pairs already entering the canvas of creation? You've got heavens and earth, day and night, morning and evening. If you carry on reading the rest of the chapter, you see these continual kind of complementary pairs stepping onto the dance floor of creation, the birds above and the fish below, the, the sun and the moon. Male animals, female animals. Someone has once said it's like the dance of creation taking place. Each pair dancing for the glory of God. And God keeps saying this is good as each pair comes onto the dance floor, imaging his glory, life and abundance and beauty and creativity being painted and danced. And God keeps saying this is good, this is good, this is good. And then in verse 26 we get to kind of a climax of creation. Then God said, let us make man. And this, is, this means mankind in this particular use of the Hebrew. In our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So five times in the whole chapter, God says about each of these various pairs, as he paints on his canvas, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he said, now man and woman, that is very good. Or that brings my creation to what is now very good. It's a beautiful moment. Not that we are the point of creation, men and women, though we'd like to be, but we are the pinnacle of it. I'll say that again without blah, blah, blah. Not that we are the point of creation, though we'd like to be, but we are the pinnacle of God's creation for his glory. And what we see in verse 27, in that key verse, is that the reason men and women are both very good as opposed to the good of animals, and I know your animals are amazing, I know they're sweet, I know they can maybe communicate to you and they feel bad at the pill on the floor, but they're not like this. They're not made in the image of God. Verse 27. God makes men and women distinct from, very good, because they're made in the image of God. What does that mean? It means that man and woman are made to reflect or to represent God made to reflect or to represent God. That is an entirely different order of being from the animals. Okay, we're, made to, we're, made in God, we're both made in God's likeness to show that likeness to the world. So that's the big idea this morning. We're both made in the image of God. We're both made to reflect and represent what he's like and what he does in the world around us. So this morning, it's not about necessarily our distinctiveness and our difference, that's next week. This is about, in simple terms, our sameness. The fact that we're both made in the image of God, for the glory of God, to represent and reflect what God is like to the world. That's the big idea this morning. So, how do we do that? What is God 
designing men and women to do together as they represent and bear his image. The first one is that we're designed to rule together. We're designed to rule together. So fascinating that uh, as John was praying and what Andrew brought just then about the rule and the reign of God, that we are made to have dominion. Verse 28, the first thing, first thing that God says about men and women is that they are to have dominion. They are to rule. I love how... um, David puts it in Psalm chapter eight. Do you know Psalm chapter eight? David prays or probably sings. He sings like this, I won't sing. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I.e., we're not the point. <laughs> we're not the point. We're here today, gone tomorrow, God's the point. Yet, you have made him, mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion. Over the works of your hands, you have put all things under your feet. Question for you this morning. Do you ever think of yourself as a royal representative who rules? Ever? Because that's, that's right there at the beginning of the design of men and women, to have dominion. And you might say, well, no, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm a servant, aren't I? I, I, I serve. I, I sacrificially pour out my life. You know, the last will be first. The least will be the greatest. Isn't that right? Yes and no. If you jump to the end of the story of Revelation, or the beginning of the ultimate story, and John gets this kind of vision of what the new creation is going to be like, and in chapter 5, verse 9 of Revelation, John, in his vision, he sees Christians singing to Jesus. I'll read it to you. It's not on the screen. He says, well, these Christians are singing, by your blood, Jesus, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Just been hearing about that in the worship time. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So we're designed, to some degree, to have rule, to have reign, to have dominion. And that goes horribly wrong. We fracture that, mess that up in horrendous ways. And so it costs Jesus his blood to restore us and to redeem us in order to come back into that original design to rule the earth one day. Now, we get a bit nervous about that sort of language because rule sounds like, well, that's that's maybe oppressive or or that's to do with authority and accruing power. But whose image? Who's the one who's restored us to be able to do that? Jesus, the servant king. So in Jesus, the two things come together perfectly. We were designed to have a, a servant-hearted rule over, the, over creation to bring justice and mercy and creativity and beauty. And then in Jesus, we do that in part now and one day we'll do it perfectly. Do you ever see yourself like that? A viceroy, you know what a viceroy is? A royal representative who rules on behalf of the sovereign. That's the first thing God says about men and women in uh, Genesis chapter one. And that's not, hear me here, that's not men do the stuff, do all the exciting stuff, and women stand on the side, look pretty, and clap sometimes, please. Which is sometimes how it has occasionally been heard in historical culture or even in some of the teachings of the church. Neither is it women. You're actually the ones. You do all the stuff, and men, you kind of stand Homer Simpson like looking a bit gormless and drinking beer on the side. (laughs) Right? The commission is to both. The commission is the same. How we carry out the commission is distinct and different, and that's next week, so make sure you come out next week. 
But this week, we're just celebrating the sameness of the commission. In this instance, to rule, to reign, to bring the lordship of Jesus that we were literally just singing about, which is characterized by mercy and justice and kindness and grace and truth into the spheres of influence that God's put you in. The charity that you volunteer for, the boardroom that you influence, the child that you raise, the elderly person that you care for, a friend down the streets, the barbecue that you're putting on next week, if it's still sunny, for your neighborhoods. Wherever your sphere of influence is, there's a God-mandated design in your spiritual DNA to bring with you something of the authority and the rule and reign of Jesus. Do you ever think like that? Do I? Do I ever pray like that? Okay, second thing that we're called to do together. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we're called to rule together, we're called to multiply together. Remember, to image God, to represent him to the world around us. Basically God's saying, in other words, I want you two image bearers, Adam and Eve, to go and create more image bearers. It is a mandate in that sense to have children. Frickin' Glenn, great to see you. Two more children into, the, into our church. Can we just congratulate these two twins? Not just one, but two. It's great to be celebrating when there is multiplication in, in life and in the life of the church. Now, we live in this kind of paradoxical culture, or at least I put it to you that we do. On the one hand, we can kind of deify our children sometimes. Children become almost like mini-gods a little bit in our culture. They can't be challenged, shouldn't be disciplined. That's going to somehow be an oppression on their human rights and cause them not to flourish and be cultivated. There's like a deification sometimes of children. Here we go, some of you are smiling, some of you are frowning. ABC, remember it. There's a deification of children to an extent in our culture. There's also a relegation of parenting to some degree, not least of mothering. Because sometimes there's a tone that comes through of, if you're a mum, that's, that's a good thing to do, but the ultimate woman will be a mum at home and have a paid career in the workplace, and then you've really made it. So subtly, sometimes, our culture kind of relegates parenting to be a, a good thing, a worthy thing, but if it's done in combination with a really worthy thing, like smashing it in the workplace, the paid workplace, as though the workplace of raising children was not a workplace. And the Bible does neither of those two things. It doesn't deify children, doesn't relegate parenting doesn't deify our children. It says there's, there is one God, Deuteronomy 6.4, and it is not your child. Our children are beautiful and wonderful, and I will do pretty much as best I know anything for my little girl. But she is, already, she is fallen by nature and by choice. She doesn't need any training to say no. <laughs> so the Bible doesn't deify our children. And it also elevates the messy, glorious work of mothering and fathering in the most wonderful way. If you read the story of the Bible, you see over and over again, parenting, children, physical families, it's right there. The whole story of the Bible works often through the messy stuff of family. That's why you have genealogies over and over and over again. Some of you read them in your Bible in one year. Oh, here we go. He begat who? Who begat him? The father of who? The father of who? That's why you have stories of infertility and pregnancy and unexpected childbirth. And glorious childbirth. You have stories of sibling rivalry. Who inherits the family estate? Who doesn't? You've got stories of good fathers and terrible fathers. Stories of amazing mothers. Stories of heartbroken mothers. 
It's all there, written through the fabric and the essence of the story of the Bible. And so if you're engaged in physically raising children, multiplying, you are engaging in an original design, not simply to propagate your genes or to secure your family tree or to feel good about yourself or to have uh, people that are going to make you proud one day. It's, It's part of imaging God. It's part of engaging in the original purpose for living, for his glory to represent him, which raises a question. For some of you more profoundly than others, well, what about me then? Because I don't have any children. I may never have any children. I'm estranged from my children. My children, they they don't follow and love Christ. They used to, and now they don't. So what about me then, am I? Am I a second class image bearer? First class carriage for the, for the mums and dads? Second class for the rest of us? I, I've lived there. You know, you know, those of you who know me, I've been a, an elder in the church as a single guy, married guy, dad. So I'm, I'm not speaking as like a you know, 30 year dad of four. I know, I know what it is to live in that space, just wondering, am I, like, am I, am I in this? You absolutely are in this. There is no second-class image-bearers of God in the kingdom and the family of God. See, ultimately, God is about building a spiritual family. That's his primary purpose. And you can see it with Abraham's commission. He gets a hold of Abraham, and he commissions him to have a physical child. And he said, actually, you're going to have more physical descendants than you will ever be able to count. Ultimately, so that... What? They will be a blessing to every tribe and nation and color and language around the world and that so everybody around the world will be able to be grafted into the family of God through your physical family. The ultimate destination of the promised Abraham, the story of the Bible, is God building a big spiritual family of sons and daughters of every tribe and nation and color and background from around the world. And that is the ultimate design for men and women. So you fast forward to the New Testament. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2.19? How he's talking about the church. And by the way, this is Paul, single. Almost certainly childless. Paul calls the church in Ephesians 2.19 the household of God. The family of God. Which is why the single, presumably childless Paul, in 1 Corinthians 4.15, he says to the church in Corinth these beautiful words. He says to them, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I'm a spiritual dad, he says. Now, come on, some of us hear that and go, yeah, 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 spiritual parent. Hear the scriptures, please. It says Paul. He may have lost a wife, we don't know, but we know he was single and probably childless. And here he is saying, I I have become a father to these people because the gospel changed me and then went through me and caused these other people to become sons and daughters of God. I'm I'm doing what Adam was commissioned to do, multiplying image bearers of God. I love what Paul says in Romans 16, 13. He speaks to a friend of his called Rufus. And uh, he says to Rufus, your mother has been a mother to me as well. So there you go, straight away, Rufus' mother. She bore a physical child, a Rufus, who became a redeemed image bearer of God. And she bore a spiritual child called Paul, who became a redeemed image bearer of God. We don't know anything about Paul's physical mother. We do know who his spiritual mother was. It's beautiful when we embrace it. Might be very painful. (laughs) Might be very painful. 
But the story of the Bible is, again, another theme is that God works incredible things through pain and hardship and sacrifices, often where, in the quiet place, often where God's cosmic kingdom purposes explode. Sometimes, centuries after people were around. So what God has always been about through men and women is filling his earth with his family. Just in case you're not convinced yet, Jesus had a few things to say about this. The Great Commission, most of us will know it. Go into all the world and make disciples. So Jesus, by the way, the single, childless Jesus. says, go into all the world and make disciples. Basically, what's he saying? He's saying, Genesis 1, go into all the world and multiply image bearers of me. That's what he's saying. Jesus, the perfect representation of God, the exact image of God. Every believer in Jesus is united to Jesus. Ooh, booming voice. <laughs> Thank you, Seamus, just for emphasize that point. <laughs> He's like, you've been united to me, the exact image and representation of God through faith in what I've done. So now go forth and find others who are image bearers of God, but need to be redeemed and restored into that original purpose. Go and multiply image bearers of God. It's the Great Commission. Genesis 1, made possible in Jesus. The idea is there are lots and lots of people who over the centuries end up saying things like, I became a child of God because somebody, this girl kept praying for me. This, this girl kept, she kept asking me at work, like, why do I believe what I believe? And she kept, whenever I asked her, she kind of gave these really interesting reasons for why she believed what she believed. And it seemed to work, like, her life just seemed to not be without hardship, but there seemed to be a, a kind of joy and a, and a health and a flourishing about her. And, and eventually, I just couldn't get around it, so I kind of came along to church with her, and I just encountered Jesus for myself, and through him, I stepped into the family of God. She multiplied me into the family of God. That's the, that's the plan. That's the plan. How we multiply, how we fulfill this commission is distinct. Next week, the mission itself is the same. Number one, we're called to rule together. Number two, to multiply together. Now, there is so much else that could be said about what it means to be image bearers of God. The imago Dei is this precious doctrine. It's Latin for the image of God. It's an incredible doctrine that tells us so many things about what it is to be human. Like our, our culture thinks that we've invented human rights and we've kind of worked it out. The Imago Dei is the only thing that really gives you a solid, secure, north star, fixed point foundation for why every male and female, regardless of their seeming power and vulnerability, is of essential intrinsic worth. Different message. I'm just going to land on one more thing. There's loads of things that could be said about the Imago Dei, the image of God. One more thing. Called to rule together in the image of God. Multiply together in the image of God. And called to be united in love together. And you're like, oh yeah, I knew we'd finish on the love thing, the unity thing. Well, did you notice how God speaks about his creation of man and woman? Verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. Suddenly God speaking in the plural. God singular, us plural. Generally regarded as the first hint of the Trinity, another beautiful doctrine in the Bible, the hint of the Trinity in the Bible. The teaching that God is one being, the Lord our God is one, but made up of three persons, three notes making one harmony. It's the closest I can get to it. There's a whole other message about the Trinity and what that is and how it works and why it's wonderful, beautiful, mysterious, and true. 
Now, why is this important? Why is it important? Why is the fact that we're made in the image of a triune God, who's plural, why is that important? Well, partly, it's important because we are distinctive and different. We're not the same men and women, despite what our culture might want to press upon us. We are made distinct and different because the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. Next week. Why else? What's the last thing that it means to be made in the image of God, specifically the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit? What's about unity? It's about unity in love, particularly in marriage and in the church. I'll land on this. A few more verses for you. Listen to how Jesus, listen to how the, listen to the unity of the Trinity. So Jesus talks about the Father in John chapter 10, verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. Total unity. I love how he, he speaks in John 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. What's happening there? The Son prays to the Father to send the Spirit. Like we're all about the same mission here. I've come to earth, I've done my thing. I'm gonna speak to the Father, he's gonna send the Spirit, carry on, send the kingdom of God. Total unity of purpose. Son, Father, Spirit. One. There's no conflict or rivalry in the Godhead. Not an ounce. They're not trying to be like the other or subvert the other. They're not threatened by the other. Totally united. And he makes men and women in that image, deliberately, to represent him. Two distinct humans to reflect that unity. Not one human being. And not one man, and then another male buddy. He makes two distinct, different, but complementary beings who are intended to be in unity because they're made in our, his, image. And that's reflected in marriage. Partly, Adam and Eve is the first wedding in the Bible. Two come together in one flesh. Unity, total unity. And then in the church itself, which is the, the picture that marriage is painting of church and the Christ, the church and Christ, the church and Christ, in the church itself, there's this design for unity. Because each believer is united to Jesus vertically in salvation but also united to each other as brothers and sisters. Which doesn't mean that we try hard to be nice to each other. It means that bonds of unbroken familial clarity and strength have been forged between every male and female who is in Christ. One day marriage will fade and be no more, and what will continue is the sibling dynamic of the church forever. The very thing that marriage was pointing to, Christ and the church. So we're intended in the church as men and women to be united and to reflect the plural God in that sense. And united in love, of course. Jesus repeatedly said, the Father loves the Son. He kept on saying that. The Father loves the Son. At Jesus' baptism, the Father says, that's my Son whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased. They're united in love and unity. And in the life of the church, when men and women brothers and sisters, begin to reflect the loving unity of the triune God in whose image we were made. It is beautiful when men see women and women see men as distinct and different, but united together in the same common goals and same common purpose and call out the best in each other and encourage each other and don't try and be like each other, but call out the best in each other. It is beautiful 
when there is harmony and fellowship and encouragement and honor and respect. And men don't see single women as somebody they might accidentally sleep with and to be avoided, but as a sister in Christ to be cherished and honored and encouraged and had fellowship with. We bear the image of our creator when we bind together as men and women in, in love. <coughs> How are we going to land this? Um, I'm just going to let us kind of process a little bit and also just to pray uh, and to worship and to have some time of praying for each other, which is what we wanted to have time to do. There's loads more I could say. Believe you me, I've been thinking and praying and studying for this for a while. But I wanted just to park it there and to pray for us and I'm going to pray for two or three different sets of people. And then just to worship and continue to enjoy God and see what else God might say. And then at the, time, at the end of the meeting, there'll be a time to pray with each other, which would be, I think, really precious thing to do. I would love to pray a few different prayers, a few different groups of people. Prayer number one, I think, is for this exercising of dominion, of rule. It's just a simple prayer of fresh commissioning, basically to go into your sphere of influence this week and to take the authority of Christ with you, which is the promise of Jesus. He didn't commission us in Matthew 28, 19 into a void. He said, all authority has been given to me, therefore go. That's one prayer. Second prayer is around this theme of multiplication. I want to pray for parents. I want to pray for parents to be committed to raising image bearers who get to be redeemed and restored into the family of God. I want to pray for those of us who want to be multipliers, ultimate multipliers of the family of God. And finally, I want to pray a prayer of unity in this family. Our world is not characterized by men and women getting on, to put it mildly. I haven't touched on any of the fracture, the results of the fall that have devastated the way that men and women relate to each other. That's week three. But when we, as men and women, honor each other, respect each other, cherish each other, call out the best in each other, it says something beautiful to the world around us. So I want to pray to the prayer of unity. And it might be that you need to, or God wants to put some reconciliation or forgiveness on your heart for people. It might be a, a space to go and find someone and just to, to call things out and say, I'm sorry for that. Well, actually, that was, that was painful. Can we, can we reconcile? Jesus has shed his blood and broken his body for us to be united to each other although ultimately to him. Can we, can we find a way forward together? It might just be a quiet thing in the place of your heart. You might be holding a resentment towards someone, whether the same sex or the opposite sex. could just be a great place just to own that in God and let him heal that. So I'm going to pray those three different prayers around rule, multiplication, and around unity. And then I'll worship, see what else God says, come and bring things prophetically. Pray from where you are, if that's easier. And then Becca will lead us in that and lead us in some prayer ministry response towards the end as well. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for all that you are doing amongst us. And I want to just pray these different prayers of blessing. I want to pray first of all for those who would wish to receive in God a fresh commissioning to carry out that original mandate and to take the servant-hearted authority of Christ with them this week. I just commission you in Jesus' name to do that and to bring justice or mercy creativity truth grace into the sphere of influence that he's put you in that the dominion of Jesus may come to fruition I want to pray for parents I want to pray that we would know the grace of God 
to love and discipline our kids and continually, prayerfully, and by your grace, to point them towards their ultimate spiritual Father in heaven who made them in his image and longs to bring them into restoration and redemption that they might bear this out. Help us, Lord, to love them and point them towards Jesus and his supremacy and his wonder and his worth. Help all of us to be ultimate multiplication image bearers. I pray for any who've kind of given up on being somebody who might be a, a father like Paul was or a, a mother like Rufus's mother was who would cause spiritual children to both grow in their love for Jesus and step into the family of God for the first time. I pray for all of us who would love to be multipliers of image bearers. Bless us, encourage us, empower us. And finally, I pray for any for whom unity in the church family, particularly between men and women, is difficult or painful or hard. I pray for your grace to seep into our thinking, flood into our thinking and our hearts right now. I pray that we'd be a family where men and women honor each other, protect each other, call out the best in each other, cheer each other on to be all that they're made to be in Jesus Christ. I pray for forgiveness and reconciliation where it needs to happen and for beauty to flow as a result. And I pray these things in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.